Back here on The Fan on a Saturday and joining us right now, one of the premier voices in sports. You see him on the Yes Network. You see him on ESPN. And that is the great Ryan Rucco. Ryan, thank you very much for joining me. How are you on this summer Saturday? Oh, great, man. Always good to talk with you, my friend. Now, be honest with me. Did you think the Nets were going to go into the bubble and win any games, let alone five in the seeding games? <laughs> you know, I-, I thought they'd probably wrap together a couple wins just because we've seen that about this group, right? Like they've kind of built this culture, which has become endemic at this point that they're going to play hard. Um, And usually if you play hard, you find a way to win some games you shouldn't. But I I mean, I thought that meant a win or two, you know, with their, with their roster and and the way it was going into um, the bubble. I didn't think there was any way it would be, Five wins and wins against Milwaukee and the Clippers. I mean, and what they did against Portland may have been the most impressive performance of this incredible run. Uh, Evan, I've been blown away with what they've done. You know, you hit on it. I I think in a lot of ways, and I compared it to Rocky 1 to Joe the other day, even though the Nets lost after the Portland game, with them having everything on the line, even though the Nets lost in a weird way, it felt like a win because your opponent is playing for everything. And for the Nets, there was nothing on the line. I mean, they've wrapped up the seven seed. So in a lot of ways, what they did Thursday night against the Trailblazers, and I was a little disappointed Karras didn't take it to the basket on the final play, but whatever. <laughs> but that may have been their most impressive feat of this bubble. I, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. And you know what? I also say bravo to Jock Vaughn and the coaching staff and the players for continuing through the entire performance, right? Because you could have said, like, oh, okay, we got our minutes in, we found our rhythm, we were able to get some of that competitive spark, but this game means nothing to us. Now we're going to rest the rest of the game, or we're going to tailor back the minutes, or we're not going to go for it. We did what we had to do. But they understood that this was bigger than just them, right? Mm. And they let the competitive juices flow over. And in a moment in time where in sports we're always so conscientious of the big picture – and so conservative in that regard, which, by the way, I understand and totally get. It was nice to see a night where you could see a group just get lost in the competition. And it was just about that moment in time, not necessarily what was best for the Nets in the big picture, but it was about, hey, I'm trying to win a basketball game, and I'm going to do whatever I can to win it. And, by the way, I want to win it because I'm playing it. And I I I was just – Blown away. I agree with you. I wish Karras would have took it to the basket. He, I didn't care about him waiting till the time expired because I kind of like that idea of like, hey, we don't want overtime. Let's have a winner, you know, winner go home situation here. Like, it's not, you know, on the bigger picture like the Blazers were facing, but just within the game. And, and, and let Karras take the final shot. I just wish that final shot would have been in the paint yes. because he was literally, you know, he does his herky jerky pivot. Like, like, he's unstoppable once he gets in the paint. He just has this unique finesse to, to find an angle. And I wish he would have done that. But I, I agree, Evan. Like, just the fact that they went toe-to-toe with Portland that night, with Portland needing it as badly as they did, was incredible and something to feel great about. And I think also something that resonated in circles beyond Nets fans when you talk about 
you know, NBA fans watching that game and, and getting an impression from the Brooklyn Nets. Oh, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was the most entertaining game in the bubble because of the significance of what was on the line. And I think, you know, most people wanted to see Portland in the playoffs because they seemed to be the most dangerous team against the Lakers in the first round. But let me ask you this, because even though Lillard went for 42, I actually thought Jacques Vaughn did a very good job basically doubling him every time he touched the basketball to a point where he took that shot from the NBA logo. And most of the time I'd say it was a dumb shot, but it actually was a smart shot because it was one of the rare times where Dame had any space whatsoever. But I thought despite going for 42, I kind of liked the game plan. They're throwing boxing ones at him. They're throwing him doubles every time. I kind of like the aggressive defense approach they had with Damian Lillard. Yeah, I totally agree, Evan. It was funny because it was like you, you, you know. I mean, there were times where he was able to scoot easily to the rim, no doubt. But you felt like, I mean, it felt like he really had to earn every single thing he was getting, and and it didn't feel like the ball was constantly in his hands. Like it felt like there were very effective blitzes being run. And if you think about it, at the end of that game, and especially, you know, in, uh, in the fourth quarter, how many times did you see a Portland player not named Dame Lillard miss a wide-open three? Yeah. I mean, it happens, it happens really often. And, and, you know, sometimes shooters are going to make you pay, but, but Jock Vaughn's gambles were paying off. He was saying, I'm getting the ball out of Lillard's hands, and I'm going to make these other guys make shots. And I think we saw some of them tightening up a little bit knowing the stakes and the situation. Um, and and also, you know, you'd just rather have them shoot it than Lillard, even if Lillard's three is going to be a step back with a hand in his face. So it, I, I agree, Evan. I mean, if you think about it, it, as great as Lillard was, he was great. The biggest play he really made, though, was on the defensive end. Oh, no doubt. Yep. Yep. You know, yep. that that's the biggest play of the game. Absolutely. So they play the Raptors, which coming into the bubble was the goal, you know, to get to the seventh seed, avoid the Bucs. The Raptors yeah. have played very well in the bubble. The Bucs haven't. The Raptors also pose a lot of matchup issues. They're a tremendous defensive team. They have a lot of size, realistically. Because I'm trying to keep from being irrationally giddy based on going 5-3 and three in the bubble. Realistically, what are the expectations in a best-of-seven against the champs? Man, you know, I, I, I think... I think if you're trying to make the most realistic um, prediction, I think you would say the Nets are going to play competitive basketball and tight games in three out of every four games they play with Toronto, right? Like mm-hmm. you might have one clunker in there, one blowout, but they're going to play some really tight games. And you probably could come up with a win or two, you know? Um, I, I think if you're if you're a Nets fan and – and you look at this series and the Nets somehow push it to six, I think that's a big win. You know, Toronto's a team, I think, Toronto could win it all. Like, one of the things I say going into the bubble that, that, you know, how this sort of situation uh, benefits certain teams and why I thought it benefited Toronto was Toronto shows incredible game-to-game malleability. And for whatever reason, I do think that matters more with this current unorthodox format. And Nick Nurse shows this uncanny ability to get his team to change defensive schemes game to game, to to really be an amoeba for whatever opponent they are facing. And I I think there's a tangible effect having that kind of mentality 
with this kind of format and setup where there's not home courts um, and where it does sort of feel like, you know, a baller can win on any day, right? Like yeah. like we've kind of seen Lavert do for Brooklyn, like we saw Booker do for Phoenix. Well, I, I think that, you know, there's, there is, for whatever reason, you know, there's more variability in these games. And I think that helps a team like Toronto. So if you're the Nets, I mean, if you're able to really make this a series, make them sweat a little bit, push it to six, I think that's a huge win. And I'm not, you know, I'm not writing off anything for this Nets team just because they have, I mean, they've consistently surprised now, right? Every time you thought, okay, well, you know, this is the game where they get killed. Or, okay, well, this is the game where they take it back to, no, they, I mean, they've won or they've played very competitively. So, uh, but I look at it and I say, hey, can I see the Nets winning a game or two? Can I see them pushing it to six? Yeah, I could. I mean, I think, I think that's very much on the table for this series, as good as I think the Raptors are. I got to tell you, personally, I was dead wrong about the Raptors. I thought that they'd probably be a playoff team after losing Kawhi. I didn't think they would be as good as they've been, and it's a testament for the job Nick Nurse has done, but also guys like Fred Van Fleet, who's had a great year. Pascal yep. Siakam continues to develop, and even the veteran Kyle Lowry's had a real good year, but is there any concern, and I don't mean this for the Nets series more, so I kind of mean it for the, the, the long playoff run the Raptors may go on. Does it concern you that final minute of a game there isn't that obvious guy you want the ball in the hands of. I mean, Lowry and Siakam and Van Vliet, they're very good. They're not that elite player that kind of puts the fear of God into you. Is that any concern for Toronto moving forward? Well, the only thing I'd say is they're not that yet, right? Like, we we don't know if Siakam isn't that guy. He He's not that guy as far as fear-inducing goes, I agree with you. But he may become that guy by the end of these playoffs, you know? Right. And I'm not saying he's going to beat Kawhi, but Kawhi Leonard wasn't that guy going into, you know, his first title run with San Antonio, right? Or, or, or the, you know, the year they lost to the, to the Heat. You know, you weren't, you weren't looking at Kawhi as that guy. You thought of him as like, oh, like, he's a pretty good, like, two-way player, we think, but he's a little more defensive. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, no, 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 like, this guy could score. And then, you know, by the time he's finals MVP, it's like, oh, not only can this guy score, but I think we can kind of just give him the ball and let him do what he wants. But he wasn't even really fully appreciated until a couple of years later, his final year in the playoffs with San Antonio, where you realize, especially in, like, say, that game one where he got hurt against Golden State, like, oh, my gosh, like, this guy might be a dude who can just go get you 40 if you put it in his hands, right? Yeah. And Siakam, I almost look like in that mold, not to say he's going to be Kawhi or can be Kawhi, but, like, I don't know, dude. By the end of these playoffs, we might be looking at Siakam as a guy who you say, oh, no, like, you feel real good about him just, like, having the ball on a final possession. Like, I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but I don't think we can rule it out. Um, And so that could be a barrier for Toronto, ultimately. um, But it may not be as things play out, especially if you look at the East and you think about is Milwaukee maybe a little more vulnerable than they seemed? Um, you know, with Boston, I really like them, but they certainly have questions as far as their bench goes and depth, and then also the health of Kemba. Uh, and then, you know, for Philadelphia, they're in shambles right now injury-wise. So, I, I mean, I, I think that I think it's very viable to look at Toronto and say, yeah, they could be in the finals. Like, I, I don't think that's outlandish at all. If I would have made this, or we would have made this statement two weeks ago, I would have thought it was nuts. Now, I think it's a fair question. Do you think the Nets were better off 
with a matchup with Milwaukee than Toronto in the first round? <laughs> That's a good question. No, I still don't, and here's why. Um, if you, you know, and I don't know, you watch every single net game. You know, if you think about the, the Nets matchups over Milwaukee, uh, against Milwaukee and Toronto over the last couple of years, right? Yeah, they have definitely had their struggles with Toronto, no doubt, but almost every single Raptors game is a tight game. Right. You know, they're, they, even in Toronto, right? Like how many times we've seen like, you know, them, like it's been a tight game, at least yeah, like yeah. Early, early in the fourth, whatever. Milwaukee, I feel like, bludgeons the Nets. Yes, and, that is true. Uh, you, you know, and, and so I just I don't think they match up well with them. And as as, as vulnerable as Milwaukee has seemed so far, I, I do think there is an element of, like, they really didn't have much to, you know, play for in these games, and they're just kind of tuning themselves up for the playoffs. I think you get to see a different scenario when the stakes raise. And so I still think the Toronto matchup is a better one for Brooklyn. Talking to Ryan Rucco, and that's going to be kind of interesting because the Lakers, too, are in that boat. They went 3-5 and five yeah. in seeding games because they just didn't have that much to play for. But this isn't like they were playing games that mattered a month ago. The last time the Lakers and the Bucks were playing games that matter, you go got, got to go back four or five months, so it poses the question of can you just turn that faucet on? How much concern mm-hmm. would you have for teams that didn't play all that well in the bubble despite the fact that, yeah, there was nothing on the line? Well, Evan, I actually was listening to you the other day when I was driving to Barclays Center, and I heard you make that point. I thought it was a great one, um, and it, 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 I think it is. I think it is a concern because you know it, it almost is like a completely different season, right? Um, and so to to feel like you're actually able to benefit from any of the inertia you built up five months ago. I'm not sure you are. And so I think it's a legitimate question. Having said that, I also think that if you knew you were in a a place of um, prominence, like a Milwaukee or the Lakers, right, and you were sort of reacclimating yourself, and keep in mind they also were both reacclimating big pieces or adjusting to new pieces, right? The Lakers obviously don't have a couple of key you know, perimeter pieces with Avery Bradley and Rajon Rondo, who they have played the entire season with. And Milwaukee was reacclimating uh, Eric Bledsoe and Pat Connaughton, who are, you know, both key players for them. So uh, I think if you were looking at it and you said, hey, we know, like, we have eight games, and then, you know, and then this is where it really turns on, you may be able to look at it as more of like a preseason, like where you, you then would hit the regular season running, right? And there is, if you think about it, NBA teams go however many months in an offseason, right? But there is a difference then in what they're able to do in game one of the regular season compared to the preseason games we just saw, even though it's been however many months. And, and I think that you could see that for a team like Milwaukee or the Lakers, where they were able to kind of look ahead and say, these seeding games, this is really our preseason. Right. Let's work some things out. We're not totally locked in. You know, and and then get to the place. I'd have more concerns with the Lakers than I would with Milwaukee, because the Lakers had serious changes to their personnel. You know, and I and Milwaukee, I didn't doesn't really have that at this point. They just maybe have some rust and reacclimation. Well, 
and, the, Lakers, and, the Lakers, I think you could be concerned about. Well, and here's the other thing. The Lakers actually have a first-round series, assuming Portland can advance. The Bucks almost have a bye. No offense to the Orlando Magic, but they can continue to tune up to get through the first round. The Lakers, and I think they'll beat Portland. I think we saw it in that net game defensively. It's a major issue. But how far do you think Portland can push the Lakers in the opening round of the postseason? Uh, you know, the, the only thing I would say is what you just brought up about the Nets game is a good point, and it, and it resonated with me. I'm watching that, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know if Portland can play the defense they need to to actually compete with the Lakers, you know. The yeah. Lakers uh, are a very good defensive team, and I am not sure that, you know, as exciting as Portland is scoring the basketball, I- I'm not sure that they really can defend on a level to be in the Lakers' uh, stratosphere. And and then what I'd worry about if I was one of the other Western Conference foes is once the Lakers win a series, you know, do they start to get some of their mojo back and, and start to feel like, the team they were during the regular season. But I um, I, I think Portland can make it entertaining. I would be very surprised if they pushed the series beyond six games. Mm. And I also think, Evan, you know, those guys may be out of gas by that point as well. Like, you know, who knows what happens if Portland just plays one game against Memphis or two. But, you know, these guys have been playing pretty much every other day. Portland's been having to win every other day. You know, Lillard is being pushed 40 minutes, McCollum 40 minutes, Nurkic even 40 minutes. You know, Lillard already is playing. I think he was number one in the league in, in minutes per game this year. You know, I, I, I just looking at that final game, I, I thought that in the third and fourth quarters there were times where their key guys looked exhausted. And so I would wonder about them having the stamina and the defense to really be able to hang with the Lakers. You know, the, the format that they used, especially in the West, it turned out to be anticlimactic in the East with the Wizards, turned out to be very dramatic and added to the final few days of the seeding games. I do think that the NBA may consider adding this to the future, you know, kind of an 8-9 yeah. play-in game. Do you think that would be appealing to do that down the road? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I think it would be real appealing. Like, Look, I, I think that the NBA has shown an open-mindedness to – changing, you know, their formats, uh, their scheduling, whatever it might be, um, if they think it's going to be uh, important for a more entertaining product long-term, right? I mean, we've even seen it, you know, within rules changes when you think about something like clear path or, you know, the way they've tried to limit defensive contact because they understand that they have the greatest athletes in the world playing their game and the way their sport is most appealing to the masses is to get to see those athletes do athletic things, right? right? And and I think that along the same lines, if there's a way to take, you know, two, three, four, five fan bases that wouldn't otherwise be engaged for the final month of the season and make them engaged, and then all of a sudden create more meaning to, you know, the final couple weeks of the regular season to the fans at large, and then maybe have this additional play-in series, where in the NBA, you know, all it takes is having a Damian Lillard to have people interested, right? Like, even though nobody's watching that Nets-Portland game and thinking the Blazers are going to win the finals, they're thinking, I get to see Damian Lillard in a must-win game. That's entertaining, right? And right. I think there's enough stars in the league to warrant that. We're, even a John Morant, you know? Like, let's say, or a Zion Williamson. 
you telling me you wouldn't be into Zion playing a 9-8, you know, must-win game had it come to that? Of course you would be, you know. And I, so I, I think that I think that the NBA absolutely will uh, will adopt something along those lines moving forward, or will at least be open to it because I think they see the entertainment value in it, and also the way it keeps more fan bases engaged for longer. Talking to Ryan Rucco, this Yankee season, by the way, is starting to look like last year. Lose guys, oh, lose key guys, and they win anyway. They're thirteen and six, but. There's got to be some concern about Aaron Judge. Guy's a great player, but this is the third straight year now where he's on the injured list. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I look at Judge and, you know, I, I think that some of the stuff he's dealt with is fluky. Um, and I know that, um, that when that star, starts to add up, people get, you know, you know they, get, they get concerned. But if you think about it, this, you know, the, this injury – is more along the muscle, you know, the muscle line of things. So that could be something that you want to monitor, right? But, like, the first long injury he dealt was getting hit with a pitch in the hand, right? right. Like, to me, that can happen to anybody, you know? Um, the, the other injury, like, you know, diving and kind of uh, hurting yourself, like, that, that really can happen to anybody, you know, when we're talking about what happened with the, you know, the, the lung situation that lingered into – you know, the beginning of this season. I, I would worry more about things like that Stan deals with where you're, like, constantly straining a, a calf or hurting a knee. Um, that, to me, is, like, a little more concerning for long-term things than what we've seen with Judge and his injuries. His injuries have felt uh, – now, there's been more of them than you would want, of course, but they felt a little bit more like individual events rather than connected events. Um, having said that, you know – I do think if you are if you're a Yankee fan, you, you know you understand his importance on the field, so it is concerning. And I, I do think Evan that the Yankees are making the right move here because even if it was like a three or five game injury and not a ten game injury, the last thing you can afford is to have Judge out when the games mean the most and him tweaking this more. And he is the kind of guy who tries to play through things. Like I think people forget a little bit how well. He performed in the playoffs last year yeah. despite dealing with that ridiculous injury. Like, it's it's crazy what he was playing through and still able to be effective. So I do think you kind of need to, you know, you need to pump the brakes on him because he'll want to play through this. But uh, I, I, I don't have the same long-term injury concerns with him. I honestly don't that I do with Giancarlo. You know what's weird, though, too? As much as you want to see Judge out there, putting him on the injured list for a week and a half, gives you the chance to see Clint Frazier, gives you the chance yeah. to see Mike Talkman every day. And these are two guys, specifically Talkman and Frazier, and Andujar too, even though he's stuck at the alternate site. These are guys that would play every single day on most teams in this league. So it does at least create that opportunity for these guys to play at least. It does. It does. And I think we've seen too, you know, there, there's always this thought of like, you know, oh, you have, you know, four guys for three spots, like, what are you going to do with the fourth? You got to trade him. You got to trade him. And then it's like, well, you know, two of the other three get hurt. So you need a fifth, by the way, not just a fourth. Right. right. And, and we see this play out all the time. And, and, and so the Yankees, the Yankees, although in a lot of ways it feels like are not giving Clint Frazier, you know, the greenest pastures to, to blossom in, uh, he has actually been a key piece now. For two straight seasons, you know, people forget the beginning of the 2019 season, 
Clint Frazier was a huge part of what the Yankees were doing. His offense was essential to them keeping the ship afloat while Stanton and Judge and others were hurt, right? And, and it's being relied upon again. Um, and I do think there's some appeal and excitement to see what those guys can do. And I look at Mike Talkman. That dude is a fantastic athlete. Yep. He has high quality at bats against righties or lefties. Great approach. He's a tremendous defender. Uh, he just, I mean, he's an all around ball player, man. And I, I, I want that guy on my team. I want to feel like I can play. I, I, I would have no problem playing him or Frazier every day. Um, and I do think there's value in having those guys on your team, even if there's not a regular spot for them when everybody's healthy. You think the sports world is crazy now, Ryan? Wait till the first week of October. Yankees in the playoffs and Nets in the NBA Finals. And it's going to be nuts, man. <laughs> it's going to be insane, man. It's going to be insane. Hey, I'm not putting any limitations on this team now. The thing I'm the thing I'm interested in, Evan, is like what happens with the construction of the team moving yeah. forward yeah. around KD and Kyrie because Lavert is clearly clearly capable of being the third star, right? But when you look at their games, do the games totally mesh? You know, how do you make it work? Like, what's the right? Because the interesting thing is, you know, we've seen LaVert is so good with the ball in his hands. Kyrie, obviously, is a wizard with the ball in his hands. But Kyrie can also be a catch-and-shoot threat because he's he's just such a dynamite shooter from three, you know? Like, can you find the right blend of ball-in-the-hand slash catch-and-shoot with Durant, Kyrie, Lavert, which could be incredibly dynamic, are you able to kind of find that? They obviously haven't had a chance to, to work out the kinks yet, but uh, but I'm so fascinated to see because I bet you there are going to be a lot of teams calling the Nets about oh, yeah. Paris Lavert this offseason too. No knowing, doubt. Oh man, that guy can be my star too. Yeah, and obviously the key question is who is going to be the orchestrator of it? Who is going to be the head coach? And I, I mean, Jacques yeah. done a great job. There's no question. I don't know if doing a great job in the bubble with this team, though, translates to being the right guy to coach Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. I mean, that's the truth. It, it may not be fair, but look, life wasn't fair for Kenny Atkinson. So as great of a job as he's doing, I don't know if that translates into the full-time head coaching gig. Yeah, I don't either. You know, I, I love Jock. He's, he's amazing to deal with, as with Kenny. Um, and, you know, I, I think that... It's true. You know, if you if you were just dealing with fair or not fair, right, like you'd still have Kenny Atkinson here. But instead yeah. what you're doing is, you know, you're you're trying to make sure you have the right guy for those stars, for this group, for this unique moment in time. Um, and that may be Jock Vaughn, but it may not be, you know. And, and I think that uh, the one thing I know is I trust Sean Marks to have the right guy in there. Um, and I, I have a blanket faith in him and his decision-making. So as long as Sean is, is the one who's making the ultimate decision, and by the way, I'm sure that also considers a consultation with KD and Kyrie, oh, yeah. which is how it should be. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. people, have, people always act like that's a bad thing. Like, you know, oh, like, well, are they going to get to, like, have a say in the coach? Well, yeah, of course they should have a say in the coach. Like, Evan, it would be asinine for – FAN to hire a producer for you, a new producer for you without consulting you and Joe. Like that doesn't make sense. You know, right. like if you have options, they should say like, Hey, like, what do you think about working with this guy? What do you think about working with this guy? And then they make the ultimate say, 
but you should be consulted, right? And you probably even have maybe a little more autonomy in that case than the, the player would in the NBA. But, I, I mean, KD, Kyrie, they should be consulted. But ultimately, then I trust Sean to make the right decision on who that person should be. And if he believes a jock, then I'm all for it. If he thinks for whatever reason it's not, then I'm going to trust that he understands there's someone else who, who fits better with this group. Excellent stuff, Ryan. I appreciate it. Continue the great work, my friend. Thank you, man. Always good to talk to you, bro. Be well. Thank you. Ryan Rucco, Yes Network, ESPN. We're coming right back. Now through Sunday, get to Kohl's and save big. Shop hundreds of epic deals. No coupons needed. Plus, get Kohl's cash. Gear up for fall with new athletic shoes for the family. $49.99 and under. Active tees and shorts for the family are just $9.99 and under. And save on kitchen must-haves like Instant Pot and Nutribullet. Now, $59.99 and under. Plus, get fast and free store pickup. Find a little more this fall. Shop Kohl's and Kohl's.com. Select styles. And September 13th, some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details.